So um, I'd like to give a talk tonight. I actually don't give a lot of talks these days here, if you've noticed. I, I tend to like to be a little more interactive with people and have some kind of discussion. Um, but I realized something stuck in my mind uh, from a discussion we had a few weeks ago. I don't remember if the gentleman is here, but somebody wanted to know about the lists and why are they all these lists and what do we do? Do we have to know all these lists to practice? I don't think he's here. Too bad. Well, you get his talk, so. <laughs> So, but it hit me, you know, and, and I, you know, I gave some kind of answer that night, but I realized, oh, you know, maybe we should talk a little more about the lists, because the lists are good. And by that, I mean the Buddha made a lot of lists, and the lists are everything from the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Three Characteristics and the Four Foundations of Mindfulness and the Five Spiritual Faculties and the seven, you know, uh, awakening factors and the, you know, 12 links of dependent origination or the 10, you know, paramitas, 10 perfections of a Buddha. And they're, they're all good lists, actually, and they're actually helpful lists if you know the list. You don't have to know the list to practice, but what the lists do is they communicate certain um, understandings uh, that the Buddha had, and then they become, when we start to understand them, have a sense of them, begin to utilize them, they begin to p become part of our practice, they, uh, they also help support the unfoldment of practice. So I thought what I would do is, um, um, I'm gonna be mostly around for the next number of weeks, um, so I thought I would go through the Eightfold Noble Path, and we would talk about that list. And so tonight, before we go into detail about the particulars of the path, I'd like to do a little overview of the path. And the path is where the path falls in the lists are, it's part of the Four Noble Truths. So the Four Noble Truths, and this is the core of the Buddha's teachings, is that there's suffering, there's a cause to suffering, there's freedom from suffering, and there's a path that leads to freedom. The path is the Eightfold Noble Path. And the path is talked about over and over and over again in the Buddha's teachings. One place where you can find this is in what's called the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. And maha and nibbana, everybody knows nibbana or nirvana, right? That's one of the words for awakening or for a good rock band, and <laughs> and uh, you know, or, and and maha par, uh, uh, maha par nirvana is the great awakening or the great letting go. It's actually about the Buddha's death, and the. The Buddha's death is a beautiful story, actually. It's a beautiful story about how to live life. So it's a, it starts a number of months, maybe even a year before he dies. And, it start, and he has, with his vision, with his 
the powers of the enlightened mind, the awakened mind, he can see that, oh, he's not going to live that much longer. And in seeing that, he contemplates, well, as we all might do, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? Right? If we saw, okay, we're going to live another six months, what, are we going to, what do we want to do with that? And so he had this vision, this understanding that he was going to die. And what he did was he went and visited all his disciples. He, he went to the different monasteries and practice places and lay people who were his disciples. And he gave basically his last teaching. And his last teaching, which he says over and over again, there's this statement this, where he says, this is sila, this is samadhi, this is panya. And sila, san, uh, sila samadhi, and panya mean sila is ethical conduct or virtue. Samadhi is, um, means concentration or but we can think of it might be better in the way he's using it here as contemplation and then panya is wisdom and when he says this when he talks about sila samadhi panya what he's describing is the eightfold noble path and there are three baskets to the path maybe I'll, I'll go slower here first let me say the eight links of the path Right? There's right understanding, which is considered the first link. It's the link that brings everybody here. Everybody comes here at whatever level because of right understanding. And the understanding is that there's suffering of some kind. It's really the, either the intuition or the knowing or the seeing of the Four Noble Truths, that there's suffering and there's causes to suffering and there may be a possibility of freedom from suffering. So um, there's right view, sometimes called right understanding. Then there's right um, intention, also called right aspiration, sometimes called right thought sometimes called right resolve. And, and the, the links condition one another. When we understand, when we begin to see things as they are, as we begin to see the way things work, it conditions our intention. Like it, cha it changes our orientation. And, then, and so these two, these first two, are part of the wisdom baskets, basket of the Eightfold Noble Path. Um, then the next three are the sila, or virtue basket, ethical conduct, morality. And that has to do with right, um, right action, right speech, right livelihood. And, and, and as we get our understanding starts to come into alignment with the Dharma, then, it, then our intention starts to come into alignment with the Dharma, then our action, our speech, our work, all start to come into alignment with the Dharma. And then the, the last basket is the basket of, of samadhi, which again translates mostly as con, uh, concentration, but really here is talking about what makes up um, a unified mind and heart. 
what unifies the mind and heart. And what's needed here is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And those are the eight links of the path. Right view, right intention, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Those are the eight links. And, the, and then, as I said, the three baskets of sila, samadhi, and panya. <clears throat> and this, this was what he taught in his first talk after enlightenment. And he taught for 45 years, and this was his last teaching, was the Eightfold Noble Path. And this is what's given to us as a way to begin to see, to begin to organize, to begin to live, to begin to realize as the Buddha did. This is what he said was really important. And, and it's, there's a beautiful text that says, um, where he makes this comparison, uh, he picks up a handful of leaves, he says uh, to the monks at that time, he says, are these leaves greater or less than all the leaves on the trees in the forest? So w what would you say to that? If I had a handful of leaves and we were out in Muir Woods, it's less. You're beautiful. It's a great group. You, you got it perfect. It's less, right? Okay. But what he says, he says, what I know, what I understand is as great as the leaves on the trees in the forest. What I teach is like the leaves in my hand because this is what's skillful and leads to awakening. So you get the picture. He knew a lot. But he taught, he was very, very practical, very pragmatic, the Buddha. He didn't, ha he didn't go into things that he thought wouldn't be helpful for people realizing awakening. What he wanted to give was good, skillful means. And the Eightfold Path, uh, the highlighting of these areas of life and of consciousness to pay attention to. And he described his discovery of the path in this way, and this is his words. He said, just as if one traveling through the forest were to see an ancient path traversed by those of former days, and going along it, one would see an ancient city having gardens, groves, and pools. And so you're walking along, you, you happen to be walking along a mountain and all of a sudden you see this, this old city there. You've never seen it before, but you can see it's a city and it's got groves and it's got, it's got pools and gardens. You can, you can see where they were, but it's, it's all degraded now over time. And he goes on to say, and the city came to be restored so that it became prosperous and flourishing. Even so, I have seen an ancient path traversed by the enlightened ones of former times, the noble eightfold path, that is right view, intention, action, understand, uh, action, speech, livelihood, effort, and um, mindfulness and concentration. And along that ancient path I have gone, and going along it I have come to fully comprehend that way going to the ceasing of aging and death. 
So also we, we, maybe the translation could have been a little different. I have come to fully comprehend the deathless, that which never is born and never dies. These are euphemisms for enlightenment or for freedom or for awakening. Very classic euphemism. So this is his understanding. His understanding was that he didn't make this up. Right? This is an important little point. He didn't make up the Eightfold Path. He saw it. He recognized it. And then he went along that path and he realized freedom. Now, um, Buddhism is not the only um, uh, teaching that thinks in these terms. Many, many traditions think in terms of a path or a way. Uh, the Tao is the way, literally. Or there's Jesus saying that I am the way. And Buddhism is known as the middle way or the middle path. <clears throat> and it's a, it's a good metaphor path. It's a, it's a good way to think about the trajectory of practice. Like what, where do you start? What's important? And where does it go? Um, there's a biography of the Buddha by Karen Armstrong, and she talks about his awakening being characterized by the rediscovery of the path that he had. And that, as I said before, it was not his invention, that it was taught by previous Buddhas, and the knowledge had faded over the eons. And then it said at different eras, a Buddha rises and rediscovers the path again. Gautama insisted that his insight was simply a statement of things as they really are. The path was written into the very structure of existence. It was therefore the Dharma, the truth, par excellence, because it elucidated the fundamental principles that govern, govern the life of the cosmos. The path is inherent in life itself. And so in this way, we all, if you're, if you're interested in Buddhism, if you're interested in practice, if you're interested in awakening or freedom, you're already entering the path, whether you know it or not. You, you've stepped into the way. Sometimes that's not a good thing, like you get in the way of something. This is a good getting in the way. This getting in the way takes you only one way. It takes you to freedom. It, it goes one way. It's said in the uh, Four Foundations of Mindfulness that this teaching goes one way, that it's a direct path to freedom. <clears throat> now, the path has been walked by many other people, men and women, just like us, over the centuries, over the generations. And that's part of the way or the path that we can feel or we can sense or intuit. It actually makes it much easier if you've ever really walked through the woods or, uh, yeah, walked through the woods. And if there's not a path, it's not so easy. You have to make the path. 
But if somebody's already walked, if people have been walking there for 10 years or for 20 years or for 100 years or for 300 years or 500 years, that path, it's really there. You can follow that path. You can trust that path. It will take you where you want to go. Now, the path is a, it's a, it's a good metaphor. It's a good way to think about practice. Um, it's a little bit linear, right? Path goes from here to there. So it, it's, it's a metaphor to hold lightly in that way. It's one understanding of what a path means. A more literal translation is a noble path of eight limbs. So start to let that image come into your mind, a noble path of eight limbs. Like you could think of a tree rooted in awakening and the path is the different limbs of the tree, right? Or there's another image. Here's an image. This is a, a Dharma flag, right? And this is a very classic image of the path. This happens to have more than eight limbs, but I'm not going to explain that today. But it's a Dharma wheel, and the wheel often will have eight limbs as a symbol of the path. <clears throat> and what's interesting about this symbol, which is also a very helpful symbol, is if you look in the center, <clears throat> the center is empty. And the path arises from this center of emptiness, this center of openness, this center of um, uh, unsolidity that is the basis for all of reality. And then the path goes in every direction. Another image or another way to think about path is that the path doesn't go anywhere. It actually goes here. It actually lands us in the present. That all the spokes are supports to land us in reality. And reality is here now. <clears throat> and so it's not so much in terms of going from here to there or coming and going but it's of the path takes us on the path of the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are all to be found right here. And they're not, um, they're not truths to be uh, believed. These are not faith truths. These are truths, the Four Noble Truths are interactive truths. They're truths to be um, seen, like suffering is to be understood. The cause of suffering is to be released. Freedom from suffering is to be realized. And the path to freedom is to be cultivated. So the Four Noble Truths are, are dynamic processes. They're not static ideas that we're supposed to believe. <clears throat> and so the call for the path, to the path, is a call to actually be present here 
and to see, to understand suffering, to begin to let go of its causes, to begin to recognize freedom, and to begin to live a life that supports that trajectory right here. In some sense, we're called to recognize that we are the path. You are the path. The path is sitting in your seat. <clears throat> this is from one of my teachers, Hamid Ali. He said, the desire for freedom or liberation, enlightenment, self-realization, inner development, or whatever it is called, is not a response to a call from outside of you. The search is an intimately personal interest in your own situation. It shows up as a questioning of the disharmony, we would say dukkha, the suffering, or disharmony you live in. The stirring must come from you, from your depths. You can use a system to help you, but ultimately it is your life, your quest. The path is you, your mind and your heart, your body. The quest does not bring about improvement or perfection. It brings about a maturity, a humanity, and wisdom. And I like this Personally, this is my favorite. Under I think all the understandings of the path are helpful. From here to there, different links of the path, different limbs of the path. The path is a circle. The path even as a hologram. Different parts will come out at different times. But, but this speaks to the pith of the Buddha's teachings. The path is sitting in your seat. Munindraji used to say that the whole dharma is sitting in your seat. The whole dharma is sitting in your seat. I really, I could just say that, and that's, that's a great dharma talk. That's a great teaching to hear, that the whole dharma is sitting in your seat. And then the path is turning to realize that, turning our attention to see what does that mean? What is that truth? <clears throat> Ajahn Chah put it this way he said traditionally the eightfold path is taught with eight steps such as right understanding right speech, right concentration etc but the true eightfold path is within us, two eyes two ears, two nostrils, a tongue a body, these eight doors are our entire path and the mind, heart the heart and mind is the one that walks on the path Know these doors, examine them, and all the dharmas will be revealed. The heart of the path is so simple. No need for long explanations. Give up clinging. Just rest with things as they are. That is all I do in my own practice. Again, this would be a perfect place to end the dharma talk. Right, The heart of the, of the path is so simple. No need for long explanations. Just give up clinging. Just rest with things as they are. Or uh, the great Zen teacher, Ryokan, he put it this way. 
again very simply he say he said the buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere don't look for anything but this if you point your cart north when you want to go south how will you arrive the buddha this is their echo you i hope you can hear the echo here from hamid from from ajahn chah from ryokan the buddha is your mind your heart remember a heart and mind are the same word in the in the asian traditions so that's very important to remember you know the buddha is your heart and the way goes nowhere don't look for anything but this if you point your cart north when you want to go south you'll end up in ukaya really one of my favorite poems and it's why the dharma's so difficult cuz like ajahn chah said it's so simple it's not that it's so complex it's that it's so here it's all right here if we were to turn if we were to look if we were to see and if we were to s- sustain our gaze right not just look for a minute not just look for an hour not just look for a day but really sustain our attention really take a look at these eight sense doors or or the uh, excuse me the six sense doors it's just paying attention very closely very carefully very kindly very patiently to this human life the mind the reactivity the ideas the thoughts the beliefs what a pain i mean you know the mind can also be beautiful fantastic creative intelligent brilliant but so much of it is just dukkha just god knows where it comes from i don't have no idea or the reactivity or the beliefs about who we are and where we come from and the the power of our conditioning to keep us in patterned existence and then the amazing power of awareness a mindfulness to be able to turn our attention and to see what's here to see the way things are to see just like we saw in the in the uh, meditation with the sound how everything just the sounds just appear and disappear some are beautiful some are ugly depending on your your idea about it right some people love the sound of motorcycles they're like oh i can't wait to get out on that harley right some people you know hate the sound of the bell why does he keep ringing that bell so we got a new bell you know <laughs> but it's just sound appearing and disappearing empty 
right? Motorcycle, right on time. <laughs> it's always nice to get a little confirmation from the universe on the Dharma talk. So I like to start talking about path by talking about this first before going into any of the details. You know, I think it's important as soon as we see the path is not separate from ourselves, then we can talk about the path. But I'm not going to talk about it tonight, the path in detail. Next week I'm going to go into some detail. <clears throat> what I'd like to continue to do is give us context about the path. So remember I said the path is right view, right intention, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right mindfulness, right effort, right concentration. It's important that we contemplate or consider what, what are they talking about right? You know, because we, we have a lot of associations with that word. We generally in the West have a right and wrong is how we think about it. And that's, it's there. I won't say it's not there in, in uh, the Buddhist teachings. There's right understanding and there's wrong understanding. But there's, a, but there's another flavor to it that I think is more important. Here's what Thich Nhat Hanh said. Well, first let me say, here's some other definitions we could use. The word in Pali is sama. So it could also be, it's often translated as wise, wise understanding or wise speech or authentic, Stephen Batchelor likes that term, authentic understanding or authentic action, which is a nice translation. Or what else? True or upright or direct. These are other people's translations. Personally, I like the word right. And mostly it's because I kind of grew up with the word and I'm used to the word and it's, yeah, I like what it means. So let me just give some of the, a little pitch for why right might be a good enough word. Here's from Thich Nhat Hanh. He said, right and wrong are, are neither moral judgments nor arbitrary standards imposed from outside. Through our own awareness, we discover what is beneficial and what is not beneficial. So even that, we could use beneficial. What's the understanding that's beneficial for awakening? What's, what's the effort that's beneficial for our meditation practice? What kind of action is beneficial for enworlding our understanding of the Dharma? And so I think that's a nice term, beneficial. I also looked up in the dictionary what right means. And there are a few definitions that really uh, uh, are in alignment with the Dharma. One is right means of a way or a course. So it already implies a path of a way or a course. Direct, going straight to its destination, appropriate. Uh, exactly answering to what is needed or suitable. So that our understanding is appropriate or our... our um, concentration is appropriate. <clears throat> and there's a beautiful Zen story that I like very much. A uh, uh, practitioner goes to, um, 
to the teacher who's old, dying, and says, well, wh what's the teaching of your whole lifetime? You know, what's, what is it? What, what's the most important teaching of your whole life? And the teacher says an appropriate response. And the teacher doesn't say enlightenment or freedom or compassion or love. An appropriate response, a perfect Zen answer, of course. And what that means is that we live a life of awakening. And when we live from that place, when the Dharma begins to live through us, then the Dharma begins to respond to life. And the Dharma responds appropriately in each moment whether it's through speech or action or by our words or our deeds. <clears throat> so I like that definition of right. Then there's another, right also means like when you ride a ship or a boat, like you're sailing, the boat goes a little off course and then you ride it, right? It comes back to center. And of course the path, the Buddhist path is called the middle way. The middle path, it's about balance. It's about finding the truth, not in the middle between everything, but in the middle that includes everything. <clears throat> and part of the, the, our practice is to learn not that we do things perfectly, but we learn how to right ourselves. We learn, it's not that our meditation is perfect, but we learn how, oh, if it's a little too much concentration, we're getting sleepy, how to write that. Or if it's a little too agitated, we learn how to calm it. Things like that. We keep bringing it into the center. And then this one, which I really, my favorite, right means to bring into accordance with truth. To bring into accordance with truth. <clears throat> And so speech that's in accord with the truth or action that's in accord with the truth or understanding that's in accord with the truth. And of course, maybe you don't, some people might not know this, dharma, the word dharma itself means truth. The Buddha's teaching is a teaching of truth, grounded in the truth, rooted in the truth. <clears throat> There's a, a little poem from the Buddha. I'm trying to remember, think, trying to remember it. Uh, he says, the uh, taste of truth is the sweetest taste, and the gift of truth is the greatest gift, and the love of truth is the most wondrous love. It's pretty close, what I'm saying. Actually, I've seen 20 different translations of that one quote, but that, that's pretty good. The gift of, of truth is the sweetest gift. Is, yeah, the, the, uh, yeah, okay, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> I, I don't think I can say it twice. <clears throat> here's, here's Bhikkhu Bodhi talking about the path. He says, the path brings the teachings to life. The path translates the Dharma from a collection of abstract formulas into a continually unfolding disclosure of truth. A continuing, continually unfolding disclosure of truth. The path means that the Dharma is a living Dharma. It's a relevant, revelatory Dharma. 
that as we learn to align, as we learn to center ourselves, as we learn to be aware through the meditation practice, as we start to bring our actions and our speech and our, our worldly life into accord with the Dharma, as we begin to see clearly the way things are, the truth begins to reveal itself on deeper and deeper levels. <clears throat> and so the limbs of the path are all there both to support our attempt to bring our understanding and our practice and our actions in accordance with the truth. And then they also support, they become part of that expression of the truth. To see the depths of the path is to see the truth. And then the commitment to the path is a commitment to the truth of the way things are. This is from Ken Welber. He says, spiritual practice is not something we do for 20 minutes a day or two hours a day or six hours a day. <clears throat> it is not something we do once a day in the morning or once a week on Sunday nights. Spiritual practice is not one activity among other human activities. It's a very important line. Spiritual practice is not one activity among other human activities. It is the ground of all human activities, their source and their validation. It is a prior commitment to truth, lived, breathed, intuited, and practiced 24 hours a day. This is what it means to walk the path, to live the path, to be the path. <clears throat> to come into alignment with the truth that spirituality is not one activity. It's not just something we do, oh, we had a bike ride and then we had dinner and then we, we went and got spiritual at, you know, at the UU tonight. No, it's, a, it's the ground of all human activities, whether we know it or not. It's the ground of what and who we are. <clears throat> And so the orientation towards the truth is very important for many reasons. One reason is because our conditioning is to orient towards two things, security and comfort. It's, it's our animal nature to orient towards safety and pleasure. And, it, and it's not a bad, those aren't bad things. Those aren't bad things. In fact, I wish you as much security and as much pleasure and as much comfort as you can get. Really, and I wish it for all beings. But security and comfort is not freedom. Security and comfort is not awakening. Security and comfort actually won't make you happy. It'll, it's good. It's good. I don't want to diss it at all, really. <laughs> but it won't bring what the heart really seeks. Because the heart seeks the truth. It seeks, it seeks uh, the truth of the way things are because when we discover the truth, we can begin to, it's not just that we align with the truth, we ourselves are an expression 
of the way things are. Just like the sound of the bell ringing, we're being rung for 20, 30, 40, 56, 70, 80, 90, 100 years maybe, and then we too will fade like the sound of the bell. Doesn't matter, even this bell, it really rings a long time, it's not gonna ring forever. I'd have to keep hitting it forever, and even then, one of us would, would end, right? <clears throat> so comfort's not bad, security's not bad, safety's not bad, but it's not where freedom and happiness is found. And one of the paradoxes is that when we really start to orient towards the truth, we discover that security, real security, true refuge, is not based on conditions. It's not actually based on getting what we want. Have you ever noticed that, how you get what you want and then you're still not happy? It's, let's pay attention to that. That tells us something so important. We get what we want, but we're not satisfied. There's something more that we want, something deeper. And that what's deeper will not be satisfied by the conditioned reality. <clears throat> True refuge is in the way things are. And one of the beauties of coming into opening to the truth, aligning with the truth, is that when we learn to trust the truth, it means we can trust our lives. And we can trust our lives basically with whatever happens. It doesn't mean we want bad things to happen. It doesn't mean we're going to agree with everything that happens. I'm not saying that. But we learn how to respond appropriately to the truth because that's what's here and we can trust it. And we can trust ourselves, the truth of what we are, to respond wisely, skillfully, compassionately, and for the benefit of all. I'll tell you a little story about Ajahn Jumnian. Ajahn Jumnian is a Thai forest monk, one of Jack Cornfield's teachers. He's written about in the book, um, it's, the book's now called Living Dharma. It used to be called Living Buddhist Masters, but most of them are not living anymore, but, uh, so they changed the title. But Ajahn Jumnian is, and he comes periodically, and I've sat with him. And one time he told this story about he had, his monastery He'd had a monastery in a rubber tree plantation, grove, forest, and uh, it was in between where the leftist guerrillas and the, and the army were fighting. And both sides didn't like him because he was for peace, right? Both sides didn't like him. They both thought he was with the other side. And at one point, he got this message. Somebody came and told him that the, that the rebel commander and his guerrillas were coming that night to kill him. And he knew who the rebel commander was. So he thought about what to do. 
And he thought, and as Ajahn Germanian tells the story, he said, well, I could have died. That wouldn't have been a problem. But it would have been really bad karma for the rebel commander. <laughs> so I thought, well, maybe I should leave. And he decided to leave. And he, didn't, he thought about, well, where would be a good place to go? And he thought, oh, I'll go to his house. He's coming to my house. I'll go to his house. <laughs> it's, it's a true story. And he went to the village, and he went to the guy's house and knocked on the door. And the, his wife opened the door and looked at him and said, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I've come to teach the Dharma, because that's what he does. He's a monk. He teaches the Dharma. And, you know, and, and the Dharma is highly regarded in Thailand and respected, and she was respectful, and so she invited him in. And they invited some of the village people in, and, and he gave a Dharma talk that night. And, he stayed there. In the meantime, the rebel commander came to the, and the guerrillas came to the monastery, and they couldn't find him. And they were searching, you know, it's a big forest monastery, so it's spread out over the forest, the little huts everywhere. And so, um, and they were searching all night. And then, and he taught most of the night at the village, and he can teach all night easily. Ajahn Germanian sleeps about two hours a night, and when he's giving Dharma talks, you have to say to him, uh, Ajahn, could, could you be quiet now so we could meditate a little bit? Because he can, he can go on quite a bit. And um, so anyhow, in the morning he decided to go back. And he went back and he was kind of in some kind of, you know, it wasn't clear, it was some kind of disguise or something, robe or hood. And he, he got up right next to the rebel commander and tapped him on the back and basically said, are you looking for me? And and the guy said, yeah, I've been looking for you. Where have you been? He said, oh, I've been at your house with your family. And he said, what are you doing? What were you doing there? He said, uh, he said, uh, he said don't worry. Uh, he said, he, I remember, here's how he said it. He said, I've been at your house with your wife. <laughs> and the guy said, what were you doing there? He said, don't worry. I, wasn't, I, I was teaching the Dharma, so now your family is my family. And and he said, and the guy laughed actually. And, and Ajahn Jimnian said he knew he got him at that point. And they became friends and nothing bad happened. So it's a, it's a beautiful story of two things. One, how do you work with the truth when it comes up, whatever the reality is? And that's also that appropriate response, right? The re appropriate response is not written down in any list. Right? It's not in any Dharma book. The appropriate response is a living Dharma response. And, it's not, it's, and by book, I mean it's also outside the box. It can be anything. So the last thing I'll say about this understanding of the path as a path of truth is that orienting towards truth relieves us of a primary orientation that we have that's not so uh, skillful in terms of awakening. And that primary orientation is the orientation to self. And it's, it's just natural that we're oriented in that way. All our training, all our teaching is you're this and you're this and you're this, whether it's Jeff or Paul or Nancy or Deborah or whatever your name might be. 
That's who you are. That's who you are. That's who you are. And so our and you have to take care of yourself and do this and self and self. I mean, it's just the it's a normal thing. I, me, mine. That's normal. And much of that even continues. You have to take care of yourself, and that's a good thing. And wash yourself, feed yourself, and you know all that stuff. But but it's not our primary orientation. That there's a deeper orientation, and that orientation is towards truth. And it's written by, uh, I can't remember how old this is, you know, 500 years old, Ashvagosha, who wrote, The Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person go into homelessness, meaning become a monk or a nun, or to resign from the world unless he or she feels called upon to do so. But the Dharma of the Buddha asks every person to free themselves of the illusion of self, to open one's heart, and to lead a life of awakening. And then whatever people do, let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent and energetic. And if they engage in life without cherishing envy or hatred, and if they live in the, in the world not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their hearts and minds. If we live in the world not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their hearts and minds. So this is our orientation to the path whether it has to do with right view or right action, right effort. How does it bring us into alignment with the Dharma, with the truth of the way things are? And then even in the Buddhist teaching, when we find that alignment, when we find that Dharma, we don't even need the path anymore. But that's a later talk. Let's sit for a minute, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.